This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, listeners, for another 30 minutes of your precious time as we talk about the political issues of today. And today we were going to do a Hanukkah special as we talk about Israel's new governing coalition, one of the few not to include ultra-Orthodox parties in the past 45 years, and they have moved to loosen the ultra-Orthodox grip on food certification and some other religious and social policies. And we're going to talk with Rabbi Josh Uter, one of the big influencers in Israel and Jewish uh, issues around the world. Hello, you, Rabbi. Hello. Thank you very much for having me back. Yes, yes. So tell us a little bit about what's going on here and in, uh, in, uh, in the issue of, um, you know, kind of certifying kosher food and what's happened. You and I talked the last time we mixed a little bit of you, you were saying you were concerned about the mix of government and religion. What's happening there? Yeah, so Israel doesn't have a real separation of church and state that you have in America. And I think before I get to Israel, it would make sense to contrast with what the situation like is in the U.S. Right. In in America, you have uh, really no guidelines for who says what is kosher. You have a couple of big national organizations that are pretty reliable, but say in the New York region, you have a lot of what are called private certifications where individuals can, anyone really can go up and certify something is kosher, something is not kosher. And well, not, no one goes up and certifies as not kosher really, but like people can go on and say like, this is kosher and that, and Unfortunately, you have a lot of different standards, like pretty much any industry, you've got some better actors than others, but the state can't really get involved because the state isn't going to rule this is kosher and this isn't kosher. Right. I don't think we're going to want judges to do that. <laughs> um, That's right. So what, with the major organizations, those are generally reliable, but with everyone else, it's a matter of hearsay of, well, I heard this guy's reliable, this guy isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you actually say that it isn't kosher when it is certified from what I was told years ago, that could be grounds for liable and slander. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> serious stuff. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Uh, there were attempts at kosher laws in New York mm-hmm. that really didn't pass. I think the only thing that got through was if you claim to be kosher, you need to provide some proof of it, which mm-hmm. is reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Israel, it's completely different. In Israel, the way the law was, was structured is that in order for you to claim that your establishment was kosher, you had to have the official Rabbanut body certify you as kosher. And in Israel, the Rabbanut isn't just an organization of rabbis, they're also licensed by the state. Uh, So the rabbinic ordination in Israel isn't just like any rabbinical school in America. Mm -hmm. It's like your state or governmental license in order to practice. Mm -hmm. So here, the government is the one that set up, well, if you're going to call yourself kosher, well, you're going to, you know, have to have gone through our complete system. There was a Rabbi Aaron Leibowitz who did amazing work trying to 
to um, break that monopoly by doing an end run by saying, well, okay, if we can't call ourselves kosher, we're going to write up this document that says everything else but that word kosher to sort of like do the end run. So Mm -hmm. practically it checks all the boxes, but we're just not going to use that word. And he was really pushing for uh, for some alternative for various reasons, so people not wanting to go through the Rabbanut, mm-hmm. uh, which I should say varies uh, greatly depending on where you are, because you'll have one in Jerusalem, you'll have one in Tel Aviv, mm-hmm. and you know different in, uh, ones in different regions. Um, so there has been a push to sort of break this monopoly over it. And in contrast, there's been some pushback with you know the most doomsday scenarios of how terrible this is going to be. It's going to be incredibly confusing for people. Right. And all that sort of thing. Um, So, you know, for me, it's interesting because like, you know, I see in New York, yes, on one hand, it is confusing. Like when I was a pulpit rabbi, I'd often get questions about what do you think about this certification that wasn't one of the big ones? And then I have to go and do research to see, well, what do I say about this guy? Because I mean, I never heard of him. And, you know, (laughs) while some people, some people have a great reputation, others don't. But for people who don't know better, you just see, oh, this looks fine. And when you dig a little deeper, you realize, well, maybe this doesn't meet the standards of Jewish law that you would actually want to hold, even though it does have that word kosher on it. So there are, you can say that there are legitimate arguments on both sides here for and against, but a lot comes down to how they operate in practice. And there have been a lot of uh, fights about, I shouldn't say fights, um, I I guess a lot of negative press over like, well, okay, if this is how the Rabbanut is going to work, well, how is it, how does it actually work in practice? And are they doing everything that they say that they're doing and all that? So it's a big business there. I mean, the Rabbanut, the retailers pay more than a hundred million dollars a year uh, to these religious councils and the inspectors. And this is, it seems to be a break in that. And and it's a result of of the, the government and the change in the government. What has the change been there? So it's hard for me to say like on the inner workings of the government, because a lot of things are still in flux and still being debated. Um, The, you know, the Kashra thing is, uh, is really important in this country when so many people do keep kosher. Um, And it's almost a a de facto thing. So when they say, well, okay, we're going to pull your certification. Well, that can, you know, effectively kill your business. I mean, it could kill your business in America too, if uh, you're, you're, your major uh, customers are kosher keeping Jews. But mm-hmm. if you know, you're good enough to attract people who don't care about being kosher, you could in yeah. theory still stay in business. But here it's much harder to have that option. Yeah, the certificates um, there are kind of like a business license, right? I mean, they, they are a business. For many, sense, in many yeah. respects, yes. Because yeah. if this is your, your, your target clientele here, if you know, let's say you're in a neighborhood where the majority of people keep kosher, which is not unheard of, yeah, that that's pr- basically everything. Um, in terms of the government, you have the Haredi parties have a great deal of voting power. They tend to vote in blocks, and because they mm-hmm. vote in blocks, they tend to hold a lot of seats in the government. And it's always a delicate balance of, on one hand, um, you want to maintain some form of stable government. On the other hand, you also want to do its best 
best for you know, what youth might think is best for the country as a whole. And you have a lot of competing interests. Um, you know, one way that I, I once thought about the Israeli political system is you can view each party as its own special interest. Mm-hmm. Um, but in order to have a functioning government, you need uh, 61 seats out of 120 in order to have a stable coalition. And mm-hmm. If you have 61 exactly, all it takes is, you know, one or two people to throw up a no confidence vote. You brought down the government. We have to have a new election. Like Mm -hmm. we had Mm -hmm. several elections in the past several years because of that. So it is a delicate balance and it's a matter of which fights are people going to pick and how much to force it. Uh, Another issue that people have been pushing back on has been the rabbinic monopoly over weddings. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, that that's, you know, I, if it's not a, a fight, it's, you know, it's certainly a fight now, but I don't think that's as far along in the government, although there have been people uh, that I know who have been performing marriages outside of the Rabbanut, and uh-huh. they're kind of like daring to get arrested so it can <laughs> go through. The, the, the way one person put it to me is they don't believe the law would up would be uphold, held, excuse me, would be upheld in the courts, mm. but the courts can't overturn it unless there's a case. Right. So one person I know is like daring to be arrested just so that there's a court case, just so that it can be overturned. Right. Um, and, so, and- you know, yeah. It seems like kind of almost a liberalization of what has been there in a long time. And I think there are some people that are saying, hey, I, I think there was, you know, someone who said, hey, this is a con- complete collapse of values. It's the cornerstone of the Jewish state. It's, you know, and you were talking about allowing women uh, to be inspectors saying, hey, this is immoral. Um, and, and it just seems, is that the case that this is, this is kind of a breaking down of the walls of what has been traditional? And this goes back, you know, we're talking going back to the Bible, I guess, right? Some of these, some of these policies and practices, is there a, a, just a general push and maybe a liberalization these laws? I think that there's definitely some push towards liberalization. I think um, you know, there, there are a few other factors in play, uh, which is one, um, there may be um, a, a reaction against the push of what they see as the um, uh, the establishment being pushed more towards the parochial side. Mm-hmm. So, you know, while let's say, you know, tw- I you know, wasn't here 20, 30 years ago, but if 20, 30 years ago, things were not as parochial and they gradually moved towards that way, you're going to have more pushback, not just from the liberalizers, but the ones who are like, okay, you've gone too far right. and you're, you're kind of abusing you know, uh, the power that's here. Um, so I don't think, I, 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 there are a lot of things going on. I don't think it's just being pushed from say more of the left side. Right. I think there have been movements on the right, which meant anyone who might've been in the center could be like, hey, wait a second, we're no longer comfortable with this arrangement because fundamental details of it have changed. And this isn't really necessary. They'll say like, well, this might've been necessary way back when, but now really isn't as much of a big deal. So what exactly are you trying to protect? Of course, if you actually have power, it can be very, um, I guess, uh, self-reinforcing if you just like want to keep it and you know, sort of justify your own existence. With uh, uh, Rabbi Leibowitz, who I mentioned earlier, uh, he wound up... Um, 
I, I guess, divesting himself of the Kashrut side to a rabbinic organization called Sohar. And mm-hmm. he said, look, uh, he, but I wanted to create a um, an alternative to the Rabbanut. I did that. And then he moved on to something else, which in my mind is you know the mark of a, a real activist with integrity, where mm-hmm. you have a goal, you reach the goal, you move on. And that's kind of his operation because it's, you know, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to achieve something here as opposed to, well, we need to sort of, you know, keep things going in the way they are. And that's a much harder sell for a lot of people who may not necessarily know better, understand or appreciate. And if you don't, I guess, if you want that role of power, you also have to show to other people, here's what you do is worthwhile and you constantly have to try to earn it. And there's some sentiment that it's not just that, oh, we're paying this money to the Rabbanut and that we have to do this, but the way that they're operating seems to us to be just really unjust. And why are we doing this? Because, you know, it's it just not the way they think things should be done. Uh, there were complaints I heard of like a supervisor might have come in, let's say once or twice a year, they'd write a check and that would be it. Whereas right, right. The national organizations in America, their standards are much higher. And they're saying, well, why are we paying this money? Because we're not even following the laws that you know, you're ostensibly claiming to be following. And when you had situations where people were indicted on bribery charges and yeah. you know, acceptance cash and then things like that. And it seems like the population in general over there um, has no problem with these changes. Uh, you know, obviously you have your ultra orthodox uh, members who, who are not happy with it, but in terms of the population, are they pretty much okay with these changes and allowing other people to come in and say, hey, this is kosher and not be the revenue? I'm not sure. Um, anecdotally, I've met people across the way, like people who don't keep kosher aren't going to care either way. Some may, as a matter of principle, will say, okay, yeah, we just want less rabbinic involvement in our lives. I do know people who are raised with a certain degree of distrust where if it's not Rabbanut, they don't know better. So they're going to be a little more skeptical of these other things because, you know, they don't know better. Um, But I do think that, you know, in Israel, at least amongst the Orthodox, you have somewhat of a more knowledgeable uh, population such that when the Rabbanut might issue some public statements, you have enough people who know enough who can question, say, well, where did you get that from? Where did you get that from? And be able to respond with actual substance and sources. Um, and I think that can break down the walls of, you know, almost demystify what's going on, that it's not just, well, this closed book and, you know, some great people just have the secret. A lot of people here know the laws of Kashrut really, really well. Sure, and sure. when they hear like, oh, you're, you're requiring X, Y, or Z, you know, these are the rulings you're making. Other people know better. So like, no, no, that's not Jewish law. You're just making that up on your own. Um, and, and I do think that that's also, you know, that gets to that whole, well, if you're going to keep pushing towards the more parochial side, right. well, yeah, you, you know, it's going to be a harder sell, especially when you're going to claim that you're the representatives of Jewish law. And there are enough people who, you know, can open up the books and argue back and saying, yeah, that that's not actually what this says. Does it, that, is there a worry that, hey, if we open this up to people outside the revenue, um, it's a free for all. It's a it's 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 out of control. Is there concerns about that? Yeah, I've definitely heard that concern expressed. Um, you know, I've one friend of mine, his the opinion that Jews are smart and Jews will figure it out. Um, you know, I do see it 
you know, kind of going both ways. Cause I do see the confusion that comes up in a place like New York. I have, I'm a terrible, terrible prognosticator. So I don't know what would happen here. I do think that could be a legitimate problem because, you know, it's very nice. You think your organization is going to have integrity and, you know, yours might, but someone else's could just as easily pop up that doesn't. And now you're going to be finding it in all ends. So, you know, it's, you know, I think there's, you know, some degree of resentment on the Rabbanut where they recognize, where people recognize, hey, this is important. We do want a centralized rabbinic authority to have standards. And they're just really miffed at how the you know current power structure has been using their power because, you know, you're, you're just going to ruin it for everyone, right. <laughs> you know, because like, you know, it, it's your actions that are the cause for this unraveling and the cause for this, you know, uh, uh, distress and like why people want to get rid of it, because yeah. you're not doing things the way you were supposed to be doing. Right. And then like, if things fall apart, you're going to blame everyone else as opposed to, hey, we had this power and we messed up because, you know, God forbid you admit that, you know, <laughs> you didn't do everything that you should have been doing. But in, in the same sense, you don't want someone saying, hey, I'm Josh's kosher service. I'm coming in. That looks good. That looks good. That looks good. There's got to right. be some law, right? Well, considering this country, you know, I don't know how many rabbis you have here per capita, but it's a lot, yes. you know, so just to say, well, this rabbi signed off on it. Well, you know, that's great. Who is this person? You know, <laughs> why should I care? Right. You know, um, and, and that's a challenging thing in America. You know, you'll have sometimes uh, a synagogue rabbi will give kosher certification to places just in his establishment, um, in his uh, community. My father did that. My father, you know, did not go around giving uh, kashrut certifications. The only times that I knew that he did it were to like a bagel store and a bakery that happened to have been where exactly where he was a rabbi. Yeah. Right. So there, like if someone comes in, they say, oh, you know, who's this random rabbi? It's like, oh, he's the rabbi of the community. Right. There's that personal ownership and there's that connection to it. Right. Whereas here, if it's just, oh, you know, pull someone out, you know, slap the title rabbi on it, who's all over the place. Right. You know, people have really have no way of knowing who's more legit and, you know, who isn't. And then it can, you know, not just be a free for all, but be incredibly confusing for consumers. And I'm sure, you know, assuming it would break down, you would still have some people who would only eat um, from certain certifications even today and for years when you have the Rabbanut certifications, they're split up into two. Uh, one is like regular kosher and the other is called mahadrin, which would be, you know, some greater standard. And there are some people who will only eat mahadrin. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think even if the floodgates, you know, do break open, you'll find some fragmentation of people who will only eat in certain establishments and not others. And then where it could really get confusing is not just with restaurants, but with other imported foods or packaging. And then it comes into what, um, what foods you bring in their house. And then you have to worry about, can I eat in someone else's house? Mm -hmm. Because are mm -hmm. they keeping kashrut to the same level that I do? And even before things broke down and break down because they haven't broken down just yet, um, you know, you'll find some people who, you know, if they're getting if they're invited to weddings might bring their own food because they have a different standard for kosher than who's ever, right. you know, whichever agent, um, you know, certified the weddings. So it definitely will be interesting. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, there are these chips that are being made against like this, uh, you know, the establishment could be, you know, interesting in terms of what's going to happen. Um, and yeah, I guess we'll see. 
Now, will that affect us here in America? Will it will it wash upon our shores? It's an interesting question. I'm not entirely sure um, because you have the main kashrut organizations in uh, in America. If there would be like imports, you know, the biggest things I can think of would be. Uh, imports of certain fruits and vegetables. Um, and there, you know, you would have the major, I would think the kosher organizations in America would weigh in over what they would, let's say, if not endorse or recommend or not recommend, or maybe even co-certify that would help smooth things over. And what we were talking, we're talking about the food and the kosher, but there's also the whole question of some of the um, the things that you mentioned, marriage and women uh, worshiping at the wall. What is happening in that arena? Is that also getting, you know, pushback from some of the people who want to liberalize it a little more? Well, the women of the wall thing is a bit different. That's been going on for um, almost decades now. Uh, there was an agreement that would supposedly reached, um, but I you know, don't know the details about what got implemented or not implemented. There was some sort of reneging there. Um, one of the challenges there is, while it may have a lot of support in America, not as many people in Israel care. And you have a very vocal and in some cases violent group you know, by the Kotel who will continuously oppose it. Um, and for the people who are at the Kotel, like, you know, that that's kind of where it is. And, you know, for most Israelis, I'm not sure if it really registers, you know, to them that this is a huge issue. Um, you know, as far as the weddings, I know that there has been, you know, a slow and steady push, if not for, you know, to remove the Rabbanut from the marriage as much as instituting civil marriage in Israel, meaning you get married, not as you, when you get married, you would get married, you know, civilly through the state. Right now, you have to go through some religious agency. So if you bypass the religious agency, then you would it would be kind of like how things work in America, where you file um, for a regular marriage license wherever you happen to be, and whatever religious ceremony you do, you do, and it's com um, kept completely separate. And uh, yeah, and there, there's definitely been a push for that for a few reasons. One, again, you remove the revenue from the equation because they don't have to sign off on you. Um, one of the issues that comes up a lot with weddings is proof of Jewishness, um, because they're not going, since you have to go through the Rabbanut to get your marriage license, you have to prove to them that you're Jewish. And this has caused a whole bunch of issues. Um, I have uh, friends who both were um, uh, married and divorced through the Israeli Rabbanut. And when they tried to marry each other, the Rabbanut questioned their Jewishness, even though they were already divorced through the Rabbanut, mm -hmm. uh, such that even if you're already vetted, they're going to make you go through it again. And it's you know kind of hard to figure out you know why. Um, when I got married uh, last year, I had trouble proving my Jewishness, even though I followed. <laughs> Rabbi. So I followed all the instructions to a T. Like they say, uh, here are the things that you need. Right. And the guy's like, well, you know, who signed your parents' wedding document? I'm like, I, I don't know. This was nearly 50 years ago. Like, I, I have no, no idea who these people are. Uh, and one of the fun questions that came up was, um, you know, the guy had asked me, well, you know, do you know any rabbis in the Rabbinical Council of America, which is a you know, big Orthodox body of rabbis? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, my father is, <laughs> as am I. Um, 
And, you know, one of the interesting things that I mentioned, like, you know, about being an ordained rabbi, the guy actually did make a good point that when you get ordination, they or at least in America, they don't actually check you for Jewishness first, mm-hmm. which I mean, technically true, but still yeah. it's kind of, you know, ridiculous, um, you know, and that's kind of the you know thing. So like it's. It, and that's a major reason why people want to get past this because, you know, to go through this every single time, right. and, you know, I got around it, but like using things that like, I really shouldn't have to, like, you know, I right. did everything, you know, I, you know, did followed every form that was on the site and did everything fine. I was like, well, you know, we have questions and I'm like, well, eh, that, that, you know, that's not really up to you to decide because they're actually halacho, you know, Jewish laws about accepting and not accepting. Um, it's also a big issue for people. Uh, people are in favor of gay marriage mm-hmm. because the rabbinut will absolutely not perform sure. a gay marriage. But sure. if you have a civil ceremony, right. you know, a civil marriage, you know, like, okay, sure. Anyone could get married and whatever you do religiously privately is on your own. That may cause a bunch of other issues when it comes to matters of Jewish divorce, but you know, that's, you know, that, that's a separate problem down the line. Um, the- so I can say that there are definitely, you know, people who are constantly pushing to, um, minimize the Rabbanut's authority, if not uh, eliminate entirely, at least take away the monopoly, I mean, maybe not dismantle it, but give people options to do things outside of their jurisdiction. And that's what I guess my next question was, it's the Rabbanut that seems to be, you know, being shaken um, and they are holding on as much and tight as they can. How does that spill into the government? Well, the Rabbanut gets its authority from the government. And if you have lots of members of the parliament who are, you know, uh, I guess it, not really more affiliated with the Rabbanut, but if the Rabbanut and these parties are religiously aligned, well, if you start doing things that would take away their authority, you're going to have a lot of issues come election time. And if you mm-hmm. have elections come election time, you know, that's, you're not going to have much of a stable government. Mm-hmm. So, you know, their, you know, political interests, you know, are the interest of pure pragmatism that really need to be addressed. And unfortunately, I, I think what can happen is if one side sees their side being threatened, it causes them to double down and become even more obstinate, which only in turn, um, I guess, uh, 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 riots the other side too, to say, well, if, you know, they're getting more extreme, well, we're going to get more extreme. And then you have this feedback loop of people just constantly doubling down as, you know, instead of actually addressing any issues. And this is a new governing coalition. And it's, I guess, one of the few that has not included orthodox parties in the, in the past 45 years. Is that's what, is that what is driving a lot of these changes or the proposed changes? I don't know if it's driving it. I think it definitely makes it easier, mm-hmm. um, you know, because no one wants to, whether or not they're in the government, they still have a huge voting block. And right. it's really not good politics to alienate a large segment of your population. Sure. Um, now, there are times when you have to do it for the sake of the, you know, for certain sake, but you know, that may mean like you do things smaller, you know, mm-hmm. like I said, you know, more chip away at it, which right. again, may not be great, but at the same time, you know, if, he, um, you know, even if 
uh, Naftali Bennett doesn't uh, have the ultra-Orthodox support, if he were going to get up and say, we're going to dismantle the Rabbanut, he would lose a lot of support from even the more <laughs> sure. modern uh, sure. uh, yeah. people. And yeah, you know, they, you're going to find a range of opinions in, in terms of how to relate to the Rabbanut. So if you go and take a virulent anti-Rabbanut stance, right. well, you're going to lose a whole bunch of potential allies or points of certain compromises. Mm-hmm. And it, it, in in a sense that um, you and I talked the last time when you came on last year with us and you had concerns about mixing government and religion and the way different people interpret is 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 it got concerns about the way this is going to? Um, well, I think it's all related um, because, you know, Judaism, I think, is a political religion in that, you know, there are laws about how to govern society which is not necessarily the way that Israel works. I'm not sure if that's the way people would want it to work, uh, but I think there are too many interests that come in um, and with, between personal and political, such that it can very easily color someone's halakhic interpretation. Sure. And that, you know, the end results, like the motivations, you know, are not going to be as, well, is this what Jewish law really demands as much as thinking more, you know, politically with these other factors of how can we perpetuate this or how can we perpetuate that? And when it's coming from a uh, top-down perspective, sure. Sure. you can easily have a lot of resentment, mm-hmm. at least, you know, in American communities, you've got this interplay between, say, the synagogue rabbi and the rabbi's congregants. And there's a relationship there. Um, a rabbi who needs a, a successful rabbi will know how to lead the congregation in such a way, you know, not too far, otherwise the rabbi loses the job. Um, and, the, you know, there are people that the rabbi has to answer to. Some people don't like that because that means, well, the rabbi's just beholden to the congregation. And I definitely hear that problem as well. Um, but you could easily lose it the other way too, of forgetting that you're dealing with real people. And if you see yourself as an authority and you don't have to answer to anyone, you know, whether or not you've got political backing, that's not necessarily the best place for a rabbi to be. So as long as it keeps going on, you and I get to keep talking like this. This is the wonderful thing. <laughs> Jews have been arguing about religion for a really long time, and humans have been arguing about politics for almost just as long, and here you get to combine both. Yes. And, you know, something that you see in America now with the abortion debate is sure. just because you may have a decision one day that might be in your favor, that doesn't mean the other side gives up completely. That's right. And if That's they right. believe and they're very passionate in what they yeah. believe, they're going to keep going. Going and you know, just as a needle can move one way, it can just as easily oh, move yes, back. Yeah. Right? Well, that's a so. great, that's a great <laughs> analogy. That's a, that, that puts it all into real good, uh, real, real clear perspective. Yeah. So, yeah. Rabbi, always great having you on and appreciate it. You, you, you are international guest over there in Jerusalem, and uh, please tell your dad hi. The Phillies didn't do so well this year, but uh, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> there you go. And we will be yeah. back next week with another thrilling edition of the. Retail Politics Podcast. Until then, always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work 
The Front Row is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.